most humbling experience in my career was this race down in Georgia, the Fool's Gold 100. It was the 2016 series finale. Um, and it was a big one because the dude, Brian Schwarm and Dylan Johnson were battling, uh-huh. battling it out for the win of the national archer endurance series. And Brian had a teammate who was a former pro roadie and he just dragged us for the first 35 miles. And there was about a six mile long climb and, um, the pace was insane. And there were five or six of us. And I was yo-yoing on and off this lead group on this climb. And here Gordon Wadsworth, uh, Quadsworth, they call him. He's a single speeder. He is just talking nonstop to us. <laughs> and I'm looking down, like just yo yoing it. And it was the most mentally brutal experience that I, someone else has put me through. But it taught me that lesson that you can definitely have some psychological warfare out there. The N plus one global yet very local cycling podcast brought to you by Lowland Cycling. Welcome to the Lowlands podcast. Uh, my name is Jerry De Bruyne, and today I have with me my uh, very trusted uh, co-host Jeff Smith, and we have a very special guest. Um, our guest has an absolutely kick-ass resume: mountain biking and cyclocross. Um, I'm looking at at least two dozen top ten, top five podium finishes in races like the Wilderness 101, the 24 Hours of Old Pueblo, uh, the Margie Gesic, where he beat Tinker Juarez. And uh, <laughs> welcome to the show, uh, Stuart. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I look forward to uh, talking with you about some endurance racing. It's a passion of mine, so uh, looking forward to it. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's great to have you on the show. And uh, uh, Jeff, welcome to you too. Oh, thank you, Jerry. Thanks for having me back. Um, thanks for coming, Stuart. Yeah, my we pleasure. Have, yeah, we got a lot of good questions for you. Um, cool. So first, if someone's new to endurance racing, what advice would you give them? have fun with it. You know, the, the one thing I found in 99% of the races that I've done is that it's not easy. Um, it's a test of yourself. It's mental. It's not as physical as it is mental. Um, yes, just have a lot of fun with it and prepare for the bad times because they will come, but you know, you'll come out the other end. Mm-hmm. Now you, you were a cross country racer like, like me, and then you, pivoted into endurance so how how does that change it for your training for your nutrition um you know what does that look like yeah well you know i i actually started off racing as a kid doing cross country as you said then stopped for a long time and then got back into it when i was living out in colorado and um pretty much it didn't change too drastically just had to expand it over several hours of nutrition. Um, that was really where, where it changed. Even with the training, that didn't change too drastically. I just had to add in more intermittent volume, you know, one day a week of the big rides. Um, it's not consistent volume. I don't have a ton of time to train. I typically 10 to 12 hours a week on the bike, not a massive amount of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 10 to 12 hours, that's, I think, Training for cycling has changed over the years. Mm-hmm. Right, where, Absolutely. Uh, people in the old days, they had to do, I don't know, 30, 32 hours mm-hmm. per week. 
and and otherwise you you wouldn't maintain it now with all the let's say training programs the power meters new insights you can you can do it with 10 to 12 hours and be competitive obviously talent perseverance everything has to uh, <laughs> has to align um, yeah so and 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 that actually brings me to to a question where do you think your talent specifically lie is it just just your let's say ability to push through it what makes you that that top 10 rider yeah you know i think that's it exactly on that that ability to push through it i've always found i'm stronger at mile 80 than i am at mile 20 um there's a race that i love the shed and demo 100 down out of stokesville put on by chris scott and i love that race one of the best courses anywhere i've ever done mm-hmm. and there is a climb right around mile 85 um very close to Stokesville. Um, and I've trained on that climb a lot. I've done it just for fun. And my two fastest times are at the end of the Shenandoah 100 Mm -hmm. at mile 85. Um, we go up it at mile 30 ish, something like that. We've done it in some shorter races and yeah, I just found that I'm stronger at that time. I, I don't know what it is, but my legs have cramped up multiple times to that point, and I kind of joke that they've waved the white flag. They can't cramp up anymore. Um, yeah, and it just becomes almost like this primal fight to get to the finish line. And just my body can't argue with me anymore. I know I'm probably growling at myself and uh, yelling at myself, stamping on the pedals, and uh, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, so for a course that you know what's what to expect, you know, I think that's what I'm more used to is like yep. pre-riding a course, knowing how to mentally get there. But what about courses that are new, like you've never done before? How do you, yeah. how do you, if you can't pre-ride it, how do you know what to expect? Well, that's a great question. It, I rely somewhat on technology. Um, most of these races, you can upload the GPX file to your Garmin. So I do that and then I turn it a lot to the profile screen so I can see how much longer the climbs are ahead of me. So I know whether or not to push too hard as well as I, I rely largely on instinct in these races. I don't have race with a power meter. Um, I keep it on a screen typically that's just time and distance. And I just, uh, I rely on that, you know, as far as the course itself, I've missed turns before because I do keep it on that screen. I don't necessarily follow the left right on my screen. Um, and I've definitely blown through turns a few times. Um, one time, actually, the Wilderness 101, I was in fifth or sixth place and was told by the guy from Dirtwire who was following us in the truck, you're, you know, you're flying, you're closing down on fourth and fifth place, crank it. So I put my head down and literally put my head down and just started slamming on the pedals and blew right through a turn, lost about 25 minutes or so. That was pretty demoralizing. I did learn that lesson pretty swiftly, <laughs> but don't literally put your head down. You know, you got to keep your head on a swivel. Um, but yeah, it can be challenging to know a course to know what to expect specifically this one race the margie gesick it's up in the upper peninsula of michigan and it is the hardest race i've ever done and it it was relentless and i didn't know what to expect for that one and i was hoping to get some period of recovery but there's not in a race like that, I relied on staying with somebody as long as possible. Just, mm-hmm. you know, they say misery loves company. Right. And uh, what made that the toughest race? Is it just a constant up and down, technical? What made it difficult? 
Yeah, kind of a combination of that. A lot of these 100 milers, it's hard to find 100 miles of single track. Um, the Lumberjack 100 up in Michigan as well actually is the closest to it. That's a, a loop, so it's a three loop. But this Margie Gessick, most of the time when you have single track, then you have a road portion to get to the next piece of single track. Todd and Danny, who put that race on, dude, they are total masochists. So instead of being on the road, we were on the ATV trail right next to the road that was sandy and loose. So typically you'll hit single track. Then you can get on some road. You can eat. You can drink. You can recover. But that wasn't the case with this. It was it was brutal. We would be on this ATV trail where it was almost more challenging than the single track because it was so loose. You had to keep both hands on your bars or else you would just lose your front end. So that race was just everything about it. The trail itself was really, really gnarly. Um, I was being coached by Jeremiah Bishop at that point. Mm. Um, I spent quite a bit of time on the trail with him that day and he said afterwards i've never been lucky enough to race or talented enough but he said it was like a hundred miles of mount saint anne and mount saint anne is well regarded in the world cup circuit as the most technically challenging course and you know that's exactly what it was it was a hundred miles of that terrible took me (laughs) 11 hours and 15 minutes to race a hundred miles jeremiah won that race it took him like 10 and a half hours to race it so you know when when you're looking at one of the top 100 mile racers in the world to take over 10 hours it's it's terrible um (laughs) wow so for that race did you have to drop food at certain locations and have all your nutrition um that one I think that's, I don't recall specifically that they said for that race, it's unsupported. They said that there's not specific aid stations, Mm -hmm. but there's quote unquote trail angels throughout the course. A a couple of times people were just on the course to help support us. As I said, I was with Jeremiah. So one time he and I actually stopped and he had a, had a filter where we actually filtered water from a stream because we were both out. Um, That's kind of how it was. I definitely blew up and I was dead by about mile 60 and just crawling, um, dropped back somewhere in the middle of the pack. And that was a race where I, I quote unquote battled the bail birds where I was just like, what am I doing? Why am I out here? And there was about two hours of just that mental battle of every pedal stroke was wanting to quit. But I had no idea where I was. It's a point-to-point race, you know, so you can't quit. You got to yeah. keep on going. Um, I came around, though. I finally caught my second wind at mile 85, mile 90. It was a 105-mile race. And um, that final 10, 15 miles was some of the most inspired biking I've ever had in my life. I never felt that strong. Just, you know, I felt invincible. Um and kind of Jerry, as you said, I ended up catching Tinker Juarez at mile 97. Um, and I dragged him for a while and I kept on attacking him and I couldn't drop him. And yeah, I, I eventually was able to, which that was definitely the highlight of my racing career was looking back and seeing Tinker's head down. And uh, honestly, I started like crying to myself a little bit. It was euphoria. Yeah, emotion, it was 11 absolutely. hours into a yeah. race and just, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, that's, that's a great story. And it's, uh, yeah. 11 hours um that's 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 a long time to be grinding right (laughs) it it is you know but there's something about that it's like this euphoric state Mm -hmm. when you're at that point it's happened a handful of times in races and it's really it's something that i've searched for in racing something that i really like is just this you know you you've battled yourself your body you 
are literally flying on empty and um, this wave just washes over you and just it's the closest I've found to Nirvana. That sounds kind of cheesy to say, but it's just that it really is this euphoric state. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Happened one other time, this race called the vapor trail. Mm-hmm. It's a race out of Salida in um, Colorado. It's, it's harder, but easier than the, than the Margie Gessick. It's a 125 mile race, 19,000 feet of climbing. It starts at 10 PM. You cross over the continental divide like three times. And yeah, the most beautiful moment I've had on the bike was in that race. And I think that's, that's the beauty of, of cycling or uh, endurance sports where you're, and everybody sets their own goals at what mm-hmm. level they are. Right? I'm not at the level that you are by far not, but I've done my long, let's say, cyclosportive, like more like the uh, the Grand Fondos, how you call it in the US, yeah. where you were climbing in the Alps, uh, doing, I don't know, 14,000 feet of elevation and, and taking nine hours to get up those mountains. Yep. And uh, like you said, the, the, for me, the emotion, the euphoria when you finish, um, having trained for it, maybe having your family or your friends there, everybody has those moments, um, whether you're coming down from a, an injury, uh, right. It, it's, it, it, it makes, it's, it's all part of that, that experience. And I think specifically also for cycling and long distance cycling, um, your, your mind plays games with you. And that's, uh, I think that's the beauty of it. <laughs> it you know, that really does. And, um, I've said a lot, you know, it's like 60% mental, 40% physical. Right. Um, your body is so much stronger than you can possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done the Leadville trail a couple of times and the guy who puts that on has a saying, you know, you're stronger than you think you are. You're better than you think you are. And it, it really is true. You don't know how strong you are until you get out there and you find your limits and you, you push through them. That's good. Yeah. Um, so has, can you think back like on any piece of advice, maybe your coach or a competitor has given you that like just really sank in with you? You're like, it, it just spoke to you. Yeah, I think um, it's actually from Ned Overend. Not that I had the privilege to meet or ride with him, but when I first got into biking, I don't know how I how I got it, whether somebody gave it to me or whether I found it was a book. I think it was called Mountain Bike Like a Champion by Ned Overend. I think that was the name of it. And I read that book and he just had a simple line in there, like never give up whether you have to sit down alongside the course in a cross country course and sit down and eat some food, whether you have to take a nap, whatever it is, just don't ever stop. Um, Because once you stop once and once you quit once, it will become that much easier to do it again. I've had that happen at a endurance race at Marsh or up at our French Creek one year. I had just come back from Colorado, was out there visiting people and wasn't used to the humidity and just absolutely way overheated, actually finished that race without a jersey on because I overheated and <laughs> literally had to lay along the trail for like 30 minutes, just collecting myself, uh, you know, but got back up and kept on going. Yeah. 
That's great. Actually, it happened to, when your son Leo helped me out at um, <laughs> last year. Was it Brandywine? I wasn't training last year. My wife and I had a kid. and uh, um, Fair Hill. Fair Hill, that's right. Yeah, totally. And I got done a, a lap and was just, just totally smoked and was not fit, wasn't training. And I was just seeing stars. And Leo came over and just <laughs> started pouring water all over me. It was a god. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, that that's an example of like I, I didn't stop. I sat there. I didn't care about my, my position. I finished somewhere in the middle of the pack. And I think I was off the bike for 20, 25 minutes that race. And Leo just took care of me. It was beautiful. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so at the Margie Gessick, after doing such a huge, intense effort, I imagine you just can't get off the bike, get in the car and drive home and everything's great on Monday, right? I mean, I'm, I think you have some kind of something to do the next day to like wind everything down. Yeah, right? it's actually so physically, yeah, the next day, mentally that night, uh, uh, after these 100 milers, I can barely sleep that yeah. night. I'm just, uh, I guess it's that flight or fight instinct. Um, those nights I typically, typically can't sleep. I watch movies in my bed, um, something of that sort. So for the Margie Gessick, that's from here in Pennsylvania, you know, it's like a 26 hour drive to get up there. My in-laws live up in Michigan, so we go up to visit them. That's why I've done a bit of racing up there as a, an excuse to go kill two birds, visit in-laws, and get a bike race on. So for that one, it's another 12, 13 hours to get up there. So my wife and I stayed up there for a few days after the race. Um, but, yeah, it was uh, physically – it was the end of the season. Um, I – actually don't think I rode the following day. I don't think I rode for like five days after that. It was the end of the season and I was just destroyed. Um, that was 2017 and I finished up fourth overall at that race. And um, I actually had to have my appendix removed that summer in the middle of June. And I had spent six weeks off the bike. Okay. Um, so unfortunately been a recurring theme. I've had a lot of significant injuries that I've had to battle through. And that summer specifically, you know, I was in the best shape of my life. Um, the Mohican 100, I finished sixth overall. That's a course that doesn't suit me. It's a pure climbers course and I'm five, six, 150. I don't go uphill like some of these other guys. And the week after that, it was two weeks before the Lumberjack 100, which is a course that really, really suits me. I had my appendix uh, burst and had to go to the hospital. Um, While you were yeah, there. So I spent six weeks in a chair that summer, all of June and most of July. And I had only been back on the bike before the before the Margie Gessick for about two months. That's at the end of September. So, yeah, it was I was really, really blessed to be able to overcome that and, and get back in there and, and find success. And that's, that's a, a great segue into my next question that it's actually two-folded. So the, the Margie Gessick um, and any of these long, long endurance rides. So um, how do you recover, right? You're depleting your, your body of so much, yeah. <laughs> whether it's uh, uh, being hydrated, uh, food, fuel, anything like that. But before that, how do you prepare for a race like that? Can you tell me yeah. a little bit, a couple of weeks ahead of time, how do you prepare? Yeah, so I focused on the National Watch Endurance Series, which is a circuit of 100-mile races throughout the country. I think there's 14 in total. I focused on them when I was in Colorado doing those ones. Then when I was back east doing all of them east of the Mississippi. So I typically would do five or six of those in the summer. So it's hard to peak for one of them. Mm -hmm. So what I would do was I wouldn't 
peak for one specific I would try to kind of maintain throughout the summer. And I would do my normal training. And actually, two weeks before one of the 100 milers, I would take that as recovery week. I take two, maybe three days off the bike, two weeks out. Mm-hmm. Um, then the week of, I would do some significant training, nothing over the top. But um, locally here, we have a Tuesday night ride uh, that's a, a very strong ride. I would typically go out and do that. Maybe not the full thing, um, but I would do most of it. I find that I need to get my legs firing. And then I would, so, you know, if it was a Saturday race, typically Tuesday, I would do a hard effort to Wednesday, longer, mellow effort, um, two to three hours, just mellow pedaling. Mm-hmm. Then Thursday, I would take totally off the bike, typically a travel day. Then Friday would do an hour and a half ish pre-ride with a handful of efforts in there. And then, you know, Saturday would be race day. Right. And looking at your, your food and, and your mm-hmm. hydrating yourself, did you yep. build in a taper before that race or not really? And on, on a, from a, from a training's point of view and, but also, I don't know, carb loading and, uh, um. yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I think I'm way more blessed than I pretty much any other racer out there. My wife is a master holistic nutritionist um, and I hate cooking. It is her passion. (laughs) (laughs) So She does all of the cooking in the house. You know, we are a pretty gluten-free family. Uh, You know, we don't have much sugar. What we do is pretty, pretty Mm -hmm. good. Um, We eat a lot of vegetables, a lot of good meat. um, A lot of red meat, a lot of tuna fish, things like that. Um, A lot of sweet potatoes. Um, so in terms of nutrition that my wife pretty much takes care of just because it's the way she lives. Yeah. So in terms of that, it's pretty, pretty dialed. She's got me pretty focused, um, post race, um, try to get a lot more antioxidants, a lot of blueberries, things like that. I eat a lot of avocado as well. Right. Do you, for the listeners, do you, during your ride, um, and and you're relying on these aid station at some point, Mm -hmm. but Starting off, do you have um, a special brand or stuff that you put into your water bottles or, I don't know, maybe you carry a uh, um, a hydro pack or something like that? Yeah, so um, I ride a specialized Epic, so it has two water bottles. So that's Mm -hmm. pretty much all I rely on. I I don't really ever race with the Camelback on for those races. And um, front water bottle is always water. My uh, second water bottle is Infinite Nutrition. They're not a sponsor of mine at all, but Pan, they are awesome product. Okay. It's something you can get on and you can design it yourself for what you do, the distance you ride, your sweat levels, the taste levels, etc. Mm-hmm. And it has a pretty high protein content, which as cyclists, our bodies can digest pretty high protein content. Right. Um, kind of along that line as well, your body can really only digest about 300 calories per hour. Mm-hmm. So that's something I, I've kept in mind that I try to keep close to that. So my two water bottles are one is water, one's infinite nutrition. Then in my jersey pockets, my left jersey pocket, I typically have some sort of energy chew. And it's it's standard. It's always my left jersey pocket. I just know those are energy chews. I open up all of my packages ahead of time. So it's just a, a pocket full of energy chews. I typically, depending upon the length of the race, you know, sometimes up to six packages of energy chews. I really like honey stinger chews and scratch. I typically mix them up. Right. Um, my center pack, our pocket, I have a little flask of goo and bananas. I love bananas. Um, <laughs> pretty much if I could do a, a race on just bananas, but you know, they, they don't last that long. And then my right pocket, I use Laura bars. 
I've experienced um, that they're my favorite. They're very mm-hmm. moist and they're an all natural bar. They have like six to eight ingredients. And I, again, I take those all out of the packaging and just break them up into little mouth sized bites and put them in my pocket. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah. typically the way I roll. And then I've got a top two bag right behind my stem that I typically put some additional, um, um, goo packets with a higher caffeine content. Mm-hmm. I don't use those frequently, but they're there for when I need them. Did you? Um, and this is this this sounds like a well taught best practice. Mm-hmm. But I guess you learned that over time by mm-hmm. just experience and training yourself to eat and to drink. Yeah, right. That's I think that's that's the thing, right? You're doing hard hard efforts, like like Jeff said and you said before. You you often don't know what the course is, so yep. Uh, you want to eat, I don't know, every hour, every, every, whatever your cadence is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to force yourself to eat and drink before you bunk out. <laughs> right? Totally, totally. Yeah. They, they say you're supposed to eat something every 15 minutes. I'm lucky enough. I, I haven't had that problem of not eating enough. I know some people, mm-hmm. they totally forget about nutrition and they totally forget about drinking. And those people set alarms on their garments to every 15 minutes, just a little chime, a ding. I don't exactly know what. So it reminds them to eat. Yeah. I mean, I've read stories of Lance Armstrong doing it, just totally forgetting to eat and drink. And um, I've never had that problem. I, I always just naturally want to eat and drink even when I'm off the bike. So that specifically has never been a, a big problem. But I yeah, try to eat pretty consistently throughout the race. I also focus in most of the endurance races going into the aid stations. Mm-hmm. You can typically have drop bags. And those I have two water bottles in totally full, ready to go. Um, I have an extra flask of okay. goo. I have an extra packet of honey stingers. And most of the time, there's an extended road portion to get to these so that they can drive the support in. Cool. And typically, yeah. draw, pedaling on that section of road, I start kind of analyzing, looking at my water bottles. Oh, my gosh, I'm way behind. I haven't been drinking enough. And specifically, my energy drink, if I notice I'm supposed to be done this bottle by this point, I will start drinking as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing, I'll reach my pockets and be like, whoa, I have not been eating enough. Time to start eating a bit more right now. So what's the intensity like? Does it does it start out like a cross-country race? <laughs> does it settle in at a certain point? Yeah, you know, mo- most of them do. So it depends upon the specific course. Um, when I first moved back here, I was lucky enough to be coached by Chris Etoff, who if you guys don't know who he is, he's an absolute legend, six-time world champion, 24-hour solo racing. When I first got into racing, I watched his movie 24 Solo, and it is wildly inspiring. I'm yeah, sorry, great movie. It, it really is. I was fortunate enough to be coached by him, and he gave me a lot of advice going into each specific race, what the course was like, and how they typically pan out. For the most part, it's like a cross-country race for the first 25 miles some of them it's even like two cross-country races back to back um and then it typically settles down i listen to my body and you you know you you can't win a race in that first 30 miles you can't necessarily lose it unless you crash but you can put yourself out of contention um Mm -hmm. i know what i can sustain and I, i know that I can kind of crack myself and I can hang with those top guys for the first 35, maybe 40 miles. And I can suffer pretty darn well with them. Know that I will definitely crack myself. Um, 
not full blown have to get off the bike legs cramped, but it's like head down. Oh my gosh, I need to slow up or I am going to die. And when I hit that point, I do, I I listen to my body, I sit up and I, okay, it's time to start riding my race now. Mm -hmm. And then I typically spend the next 25 miles or so eating and drinking a lot more than I had been and trying to recover, setting my pace. Um, my natural pace is pretty, pretty good. And I just kind of do that pace for as long as I can. I try to find somebody else and try to ride and share, share the the duties with somebody else. I love talking. I'm a talker. Um, I'm that idiot whose heart rate's doing 190 and I'm still just yapping at you. Um, I learned that trick from a dude, Gordon Wadsworth, who he's a single speeder in a most humbling experience in my career was this race down in Georgia, the Fool's Gold 100. It was the 2016 series finale. Um, and it was a big one because the dude Brian Schwarm and Dylan Johnson were battle- uh-huh. battling it out for the win of the National Archer Endurance Series. And Brian had a teammate who was a former pro roadie, and he just dragged us for the first 35 miles. And there was about a six mile long climb, and um, the pace was insane. And there were five or six of us, and I was yo yoing on and off this lead group on this climb. And here, Gordon Wadsworth. Uh, Quadsworth, they call him. He's a single speeder. He is just talking nonstop to us. <laughs> and I'm looking down, like just yo yoing it. And it was the most mentally brutal experience that I, someone else has put me through. But it taught me that lesson to <laughs> you can definitely have some psychological warfare out there. Nice. Yeah. I have no idea if that answered your question. I don't actually know what the question was, but that's a fun little anecdote that if you can fuck with your friends, uh, you know, do it because it, it is brutal. And when you look down and your heart rate's, you know, maxed out and someone else is talking to you, it's uh, it's terrible. Yeah, or drinking yeah. for that matter, right? <laughs> Just drinking and eating in the meanwhile. And it's those small mental, let's say, pokes. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yep, totally. So I know when you were training for the um – the divide mm-hmm. you were going through a lot of different equipment changing out shoes because you something would be too stiff um what equipment would you recommend that would be different from like cross-country racing for someone that wants to get into endurance well for the divide specifically i can't answer that because i didn't succeed at that <laughs> and actually yeah. that was a pretty unique experience with terms of equipment um I had always loved slamming my feet into shoes. Like I'm an eight and a half, but I would wear and race in about a seven and a half. I think that came from growing up playing ice hockey all the way up through college. And when I started training for the divide, I started to use bigger shoes because I know your feet swell. And my right foot specifically changed drastically during the build up to that, that event. Um, and it finally, it took about a year. My, my right foot honestly changed over the, past two years since then until about this winter and my when your feet change your pedal stroke changes um and i've had a lot of right leg problems i had a ginormous cyst in my right knee that was found when i was 16 that got removed when i was 27 and it yeah i i played a lot with with equipment then and i never found the right solution i think i just recently have but i guess kind of to that extent jeff is to fiddle around with it, you know, to an extent. Um, I know there's stories that Eddie Merckx used to race with an Allen key in his pocket and he would be known to get off and and adjust something here, adjust something there. But to that same extent, 
something I wish I had been told when I was first getting into racing was don't change anything too drastically all right. at once. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first got into racing, I bought my first race bike, went to University Cycles in Boulder, um, got a bike fit professionally. And actually that bike fit that the guy set me up on is pretty darn close to where I currently am, mm-hmm. but it was such a massive change from where I was to that, that my left hamstring just was killing me. Every pedal stroke was terrible. And I, I was like, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This is terrible. And I went back to my old position. Um, now I'm back at that same position then. And I wish that I would have known, hey, this is where you should be. Slowly, slowly move it. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess kind of the equipment, you know, go get a professional bike fit would mm-hmm. be my my main piece of advice. And when, once you get that, if it's a drastic change, talk to your bike fitter, find out what their fitting philosophy is. Do they like you forward and tight? Do they like you back and low? Um, and whatever that fit is, if it's a huge change, like I'm now an inch and a half higher than I was in 2017. Mm. That's a huge change. Um, the fitters back in the, when I first was doing it, we're trying to do that all at once. And you're, body if you've been doing something can't do that so get a bike fit listen to what they say if it's a drastic change implement it over the course of months even if it's in race season you know once a month move it a millimeter here and there but then also listen to your body um your body's constantly changing some days you're Mm -hmm. tighter some days you're less tight that's why i bring up that eddie merrick's racing with an allen key you know some days you wake up and you're really really tight lower the saddle a millimeter, you know, have the tape where that ideal mark is. But if it needs to go a little higher, some days you're feeling great, raise it a millimeter, you know, it's fine to play around with those things as your body's changing and listen to your body. And if something's not feeling comfortable, don't just do it because it's what you're told. Um, There's no specific fit. Yeah, exactly. It's, there's so many variables on the bike. Right, it's uh, your your crank length, your seat height, uh, the position of your seat on the rails, your mm-hmm. stem, your steering, your handlebars width. It, it, it's so many things that you can tweak your to your point, and uh, yeah. I think that's great advice. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, to that extent, I have a garage just full of parts, just from playing around of trying different things, trying different positions, different stems, different handlebars, different saddles. You know. There's the three points of contact, your hands, your feet, your butt, mm-hmm. you know, take a lot of time to find out what works for you. And with your hands, it's not just the grips, it's the width, it's the hand position. Um, I use something called togs. They're little over the handlebar things for your thumbs to mm-hmm. sit on. Um, with my shoes, I have different inserts that I put in there, you know, to angle my feet. Yeah. So experiment, find out what's right for your body. Yeah, I remember when you were having all that pain um, and you were trying to figure out your position, you and I had spoke and I said, well, don't you have your old bike and your old shoes? Why don't you put those on and see if you still have that pain? And you were like, oh, it's gone away, right? So we knew that that was kind of your baseline. Mm -hmm. I like to do that. If I get a new bike, I keep my old bike and my old shoes and kind of preserve that because Mm-hmm. That was what that was what felt comfortable for me. So if anything totally. changes, I can always go back to that. Nice totally, to and that. you know, 
you're spot on. I remember that specifically. That's what I did. And then I slowly moved it back to where I am now. Heck, even yesterday, I lowered my seat a millimeter just because I felt tight on the bike. You know, I hopped on and it felt like I was reaching for the pedals and it, yeah. I could feel it in my hamstrings and it just didn't feel quite right. It's like, you know, who says you can't move it? Nobody, you know, do, do whatever you want, do what feels comfortable for you. But get the professional advice because they are an outside perspective that can view you, view mm-hmm. your body, go to guys like Tim Gresh, who you've interviewed before. Um, and, and look at that because they have that professional experience and that guideline of where you definitely are, should not be. And they put you kind of within that realm within a few millimeters here and there. And then from there, do whatever your body's telling you to do. Yeah, absolutely. That is, yeah, that's that's great advice, and that's people underestimate that. And uh, one of the, the goals for for this this podcast is to to get people to cycle and cycle more. And yeah. cycling more is really all about uh, enjoying yourself doing that. So if you don't have those pains and aches, uh, just enjoy the ride. That's yeah. that's what we're aiming at. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Kind of switching gears. Um, Keeping at at the endurance mountain bike racing and something that I'm interested in, you've been doing it for quite a number of years and um, more and more you see now with with YouTube and all these pros getting more and more involved with uh, Leadville, but also the the gravel racing, uh, Dirty Kansa, the let's say quote unquote old school guys normally don't appreciate the pros getting that much involved or maybe it's not the 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 old school guys that have been doing it for a while but it it's it's um, it's a community of people um and they like to keep it as a let's say a smaller community doing what they do what's your what's your take on that what's your point of view on it it growing and and getting more visibility Bring it, bring yeah. it. The more exposure, the better. You know, I, I would, I know the dudes like Alex Howes and Lachlan Morton are doing a lot of that, doing that quote unquote, uh, you know, EF education first exactly. alternative mm-hmm. racing. I, I would love the opportunity for those guys to line up with us. Um, one year up at the Lumberjack, there was a guy, Brad White from United Healthcare, who he lined up with us at that race. And he had just three weeks prior done the Perry Roubaix yeah. um, and finished. And that was freaking awesome to have a dude like that out there. Pace was insane. And he, uh, power those guys can put out on the flats is mind boggling. He towed us a lot, but yeah, I mean, if, if those guys want to get out there and, and do them, you know, the more exposure, the better, I think it's awesome to see them doing that stuff. So, so bring it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, uh, Leadville, where um, Lance Armstrong at some point raced, he set the new yeah. record, the time record. Then Levi, Levi Leipheimer the next year uh, took that record. And yeah. now I believe it's an Austrian guy who still has the record. It's uh, uh, six hours. Yeah, Albin Lakata, I yeah, think it's exactly. his name, yeah. a multi time world champion for marathon racing. Um, yeah, so Lance started doing that against a guy, Dave Weens. Dave Weens is from Gunnison, Colorado. Um, I lived in Crested Butte, Colorado, about 30 minutes away from, from there. Mm-hmm. Actually, just right up the road. You have to go through Gunnison to go uh, up to Crested Butte, and it's where the grocery store is. And um, 
Dave Weems is a Hall of Fame mountain biker. He won Leadville Trail six times in a row, something like that. Mm-hmm. And Lance had just come off the Tour de France, and um, Dave beat him. Dave beat him at Leadville, and then Lance came back the following year and beat Dave. Um, and that kind of put Leadville Trail on the map for mm-hmm. this is a legit race. Um, again, where I lived in Crested Butte, Lance lived over in Aspen, and he came over and he did some racing with us over over it. Um, again, the power these road guys can put out on the flats is yeah. just mind-boggling. It's pretty cool. This concludes the part one our interview with Stuart. Please stay tuned for part number two, where Stuart will go into how he got into cycling, uh, more of his background and absolutely more great advice from Stuart on endurance cycling. Thank you for listening and we will catch you on the next podcast.